Welcome, everyone, for episode 73 of Some Like It, Scott, part of the Media Plug Podcast Network. I'm your host, Scott Shelton, and on today's episode of the podcast, we are marking our two-year anniversary. That's right, guys. We have done two full years of this podcast. We're entering our third year, and as per tradition for our first official episode of our new year of podcasting, uh, we are doing the Golden Globes recap, this time the 77th annual Golden Globe Awards. But before we get to that, with me, as always, I have my co-host, Scott Harvey. Scott, how are you doing? I'm good. Yeah, it's hard to believe we've made it uh, two years. It, it feels pretty good. You know, I feel like sometimes with these artistic endeavors, when, you know, you started out and maybe it's not uh, not going anywhere, uh, you, you kind of there's kind of the tendency to give up on it. But I'm glad that we have stuck with it, despite, I mean, you know, we're not we don't have a serial level audience. Let's be honest. Let's be honest here. But I think we have a, a small but loyal and devoted fan base which I, uh, I I appreciate you all for uh, for keeping us going and honestly even if even if we didn't have anyone listening it's been uh, it's been really fun so I'm excited for uh, year three that's the nature of it and honestly I mean the reason we started this was because we thought it'd be a lot of fun to talk about movies and we've had a lot of fun talking about movies even if people haven't always enjoyed listening to us talk about movies um, so what better way to yeah, kick off yeah, the no. uh, third year yeah, and everyone that I follow in this industry always, you know, their number one piece of advice is always just to keep with it. No, no matter whether anyone's listening or not, just keep with it as long as you enjoy doing it. And I think that uh, we're living by that that mantra. And who knows? Uh, may, maybe uh, goodwill will come our way eventually. Hey, maybe 2020 will be a good year. Maybe the 2020s will be a good decade for us. Who knows how long we'll do this thing? For. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, but honestly, I can't see it stopping uh, this year. And, and with that note, we might as well kick off 2020. Uh, yes, we did our New Year's Day episode, so we technically have done an episode in 2020 already, but really for the first time talking about something that happened in 2020, and that is the 77th Golden Globe Awards. Scott, so much happened last night. We're recording on on Monday. This is hopefully releasing either Tuesday, but most likely Wednesday. Uh, so it's been a few days removed now. But, you know, the Golden Globe Awards, I feel like every single year that I think about the Golden until like, why do we give so much importance? Well, one, to award show in general. Uh, but particularly the Golden Globes, and you just have 90 people uh, voting on these awards compared to the Oscars, a lot more than that. I think something like eight, close to 8,000 uh, voters now. So we're going to talk later over the course of the next like, 30, 45 minutes about what the implications are for the Oscars or some of these things. But it's also important to remember it's like one-tenth of the voting size uh, of the Oscars. And I don't know if anyone in the HFPA, in fact, I think probably not anyone in the HFPA is a voting member yeah, of the probably. Academy. So uh, that that should tell you uh, put things into perspective and also put the Golden Globes in particular into perspective about how, how we give importance to these things. But nevertheless, it is one of the primetime award shows to watch. And we did watch it. Ricky Gervais hosted for the fifth time. We'll talk about him a little bit later. I think the best place to start at the top, Scott, is, well, the two biggest winners of the night, but also happen to be the two winners of the best picture, the two different best picture categories. And we'll start with the one that was probably the bigger surprise of the two, I think that in some ways the other one also had some surprises for me. But 1917, probably the biggest surprise 
in, in a good way for 1917 of the evening, winning both best director for Sam Mendes in, I mean, to me, absolutely shocking that he won. He won that uh, award, yeah. did not see that coming whatsoever. And then following that up with a best motion picture drama award as well. Scott, what do you make of this one for how big, the, how important this is for 1917 in general as a movie as it, as it goes into wide release this coming weekend, but two also for its Oscar chances. Yeah, no, I think it's interesting to think about, especially in relation to another movie that it was nominated against, which is the Irishman. Um, I think the Irishman was a movie that everyone thought was going to win the uh, best pic- motion picture drama, maybe would take an acting award potentially or a directing for Martin Scorsese, certainly. Um, and then ha- had a really good chance to win the best picture Oscar as well. Um, and you know, while I'm not counting it out of the best picture Oscar race, at this point, I think it's safe to say that 1917 probably has a little bit of a uh, of a bump over it after what happened at the Golden Globes. And I do want to be trepidatious about saying that, though, because last year, of course, we had Bohemian Rhapsody win uh, the best motion picture drama. And I don't think that Bohemian Rhapsody ever really had a chance to win best picture at the Oscars. We never really talked about it like it had a chance or that the Golden Globes um win last year really changed anything for it. But I think the difference here is that last year there was just a lot of bad will going around towards Bohemian Rhapsody after it won. There was a lot of outrage on Twitter. There was a lot of people saying this is ridiculous that this is the movie winning best motion picture drama. And so I think I kind of felt like ultimately that was going to hurt its Oscar chances because of course Oscar nomination voting does take place, I think, this week early. Um, and so it's kind of about what's going to be in the heads of these voters when they go to, to cast their ballots. And I don't think that that's the case with 1917. Certainly this movie has its detractors out there, people who feel like it's, you know, more style than substance, kind of like Bohemian Rhapsody was. Um, but there wasn't the same widespread outrage on film Twitter and such um, with, with respect to this win um, as there was with respect to Bohemian Rhapsody last year. And I think that part of it is, you know, it's, it's hard to speculate because we still haven't seen this film, but um, it is such an impressive technical achievement from, from all I hear. It's that it's just a jaw-dropping technical achievement of how did they pull this off? You know, I, I just, you know, I don't understand how they, they were able to do this whole one-shot technique and everything. And while Bohemian Rhapsody was a technically impressive film, I don't think it really had that narrative going for it. It had the live aid scene and that was, you know, that was kind of its, its apex. Um, and so I think that 1917 right now, I'm still looking at as looking at it as a movie that um, maybe is, is leaning more towards a favorite in the technical categories than it is in anything substantive. Um, but I think that this has certainly helped its chances and probably hurt the Irishman's chances uh, when it comes to the Oscars. Yeah, I think that it is such an interesting comparison to last year when you talk about a movie that, even though it's not the first thing that I think of when I think of Bohemian Rhapsody, it is the it is the movie in the or the film that that took home a lot of technical awards last year at the Oscars when when all was said and done. I think it took home a couple editing awards uh, or or sound mixing awards, right? I forget what it was exactly, but I think it was sound mixing and editing, right? That I think it won both. And now I we haven't seen 1917 yet. We're talking about how right before we started recording, we're going to see this in a few days. I fully expect it to disrupt, you know, that top 10 list that I, that, that you know, that I gave out last week. I, I expect it to, to pop up somewhere just based on everything that I'm hearing. I'm a sucker for 
uh, good cinematography and and Roger Deakins being the greatest of all time. I think that cinematography is going to really work for me. We'll see how that shakes out. But for me, it's, it was one of those experiences where I was watching. It was like I was surprised first off for Sam Mendes to get Best Director, and then a little bit less surprised that it won Best Picture Drama after Sam Mendes had won Best Director. But I will say that I couldn't uh, agree more with with the portrayal of how this affects the Irishman and, and also marriage story as, as well. A movie that maybe had a little bit less buzz relative to the Irishman in terms of its chances for best picture drama uh, and maybe some other categories as well. I think that it was in that not unlike the Irishman is, well, you know, was in some tight races with other movies for other Oscars, but and they both, well, that's not true. Marriage story did win uh, best supporting actress for Laura Dern. But other than that, you know, completely drew blanks on both. And, and I think that, that, that surprised me that both of them drew blanks in that way. We'll talk about this a little bit later on in more detail, but whether or not the HFPA likes Netflix very much, I think that last night shows that at least this was not Netflix's year for the HFPA. Uh, we'll talk, like I said, we'll talk about that in a second, but to get back to 1917, I think that you know more so than Bohemian Rhapsody, this is going to be the kind of film that has a chance to take that technical skill and mastery that it that it shows on screen both through Deacons, you know, through the set design and the way that they're able to construct the one shot and the well different shots that they ultimately combine to make one shots again still very long shots, I'm sure. Uh but obviously not taking the whole movie in one shot. And then, you know, what Sam Mendes was able to do to direct that, choreograph that, do all those things with that. I think that that people rightfully or wrongfully, I think rightfully, but rightfully or wrongfully, uh, people are going to respect that more than I think what Bohemian Rhapsody uh, was able to do. And I, I, again, I, I am in that camp for sure. But regardless of that, I, I just think the reality is that Oscar voters, Hollywood in general, is going to take the technical feat of a one-shot-like uh, movie, you know, a two-hour production, uh, more so than than what you know the the sound mixing, sound editing production value of Bohemian Rhapsody. Because you know, like we talked about when we reviewed Bohemian Rhapsody, and pretty much every time we talked about it in the award season. They had to do a lot of editing because Freddie Mercury's not singing. Uh, Rami Malek's yeah. not singing uh, in that film. So they did have to do a lot of work uh, on that. And so I agree. Yeah. It, it was a big surprise overall. And it definitely, in my mind, having, you know, sight unseen, having not seen the film, boosts uh, my thoughts on its Oscar chances. Uh, that being said, we if you rewind a couple of years, you look at Dunkirk from 2017 and you think about what that movie was able to accomplish. It did not win, you know, the Golden Globe for Best Motion Picture Drama, but it was a similar type film, a war a war film that's shot and edited in a very interesting way in a technical masterpiece. And I wonder if the Oscars will ultimately treat it like it will Dunkirk or will it be something different this time? Yeah, that's a good comparison. And I was just thinking, you know, it is interesting that second year in a row, the Golden Globes have shown sort of a tendency to go with the, I guess, more mainstream choice uh, in this best motion picture drama rather than going for sort of the auteurish cinema like you know like marriage story or the irishman instead they went with something more mainstream like uh 1917 last year you had the same sort of thing with uh, a movie like roma getting ignored um i don't know that that necessarily spells anything out for the future but um maybe not the greatest trend uh you know obviously it's a small sample size but uh, maybe not the greatest trend in terms of where what they seem to be looking at for this particular category yeah, I mean that's an interesting take. I guess I never, I haven't really thought of any of these movies as more or less mainstream than the other that we're talking about. I mean, I, I guess Marriage Story maybe is a little bit more niche in the, in its topic, but even that, I'm not sure. I mean, Noah Baumbach's a little bit more of an indie director, but Sam Mendes and Martin Scorsese are making 
you know, they're making huge, huge movies. Yes, Scorsese's movie didn't get a wide theatrical release, so it's it's hard to compare apples to apples and what these theatrically uh, end up end up doing in their in their runs. But I don't know if if opting for 1917 is a more mainstream pick than something like The Irishman, which I just think Scorsese that, established for 30 years making these types of movies. Yes, I just think that Scorsese is more like again to use the word. I think he's more of an auteur than Sam Mendes is. I think Sam Mendes is kind of a chameleonic director. He doesn't really put his signature on the films that he directs. And he's a good filmmaker for sure. He's, I mean, he won the best picture Oscar uh, for his directorial debut. He's directed one of the best James Bond movies. But when you're watching a movie that Sam Mendes directed, you don't automatically think, Oh, this is a Sam Mendes film. Like the way that you do when you're watching a Scorsese film, I think. Um, And obviously this is a little bit different because of what we're talking about with the technical aspects of the film, but you know, it is interesting to think about that in relation to a similar film last year in Bohemian Rhapsody. Uh, again, that went up against a movie like Roma, which has the director's stamp all over it. Yeah. And and certainly Bohemian Rhapsody, more mainstream than all the movies that we're talking about here. I mean, that I don't yeah. remember exactly what the final tally was at the box office, but I mean, that, that movie had legs for ages. I mean, that, that movie just kept making money and money and money. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I don't know if it, I don't know if it broke a billion. I don't think it did, but it was definitely in uh, north of 500 million for sure. And mm-hmm. I don't care what, you know, any of these movies are, aren't, they're not coming close to making more than half a million, half a billion dollars at the box office, even if sure. they have been re- all been released. But that being said, you know, going from 1917, we'll see how main, like how much it does at the box office. Cause we will, it, it is getting that wide release this weekend. Like I mentioned, by the time the Oscars rolls around, it'll have a, you know, a full four or five weeks for us to really judge how well and, and it's being received at least at least by the by the audience and by people who are finally seeing this film after you know months almost of, of critics talking about it since the first screening that it got to a movie that came out in July it came out uh, to much to much fanfare because of its director you talk about an auteur you know Quentin Tarantino is absolutely one of those people who automatically you when you watch his films you're like this is a Tarantino film uh, first and foremost over everything else and that's once upon a time in Hollywood it it won three awards in fact it won the most awards I think because I think it was the only film to win three awards it won of course for best picture musical or comedy it won for best supporting actor for Brad Pitt's performance as Cliff Booth and Quentin Tarantino gets a best screenwriter uh, award, award as well Scott for me you know I mentioned kind of in our in our little chat last night while we were watching the orchard i was a little bit surprised that quentin took home uh the best screenplay uh, award i was less surprised about brad pitt and of course the best motion picture musical or comedy awards that it received but you weren't surprised by the best screener you actually predicted it scott so let's hear from you are you surprised at the three awards or i i won't i won't phrase it that way are you surprised that it comes out as the biggest winner of the night no i honestly i'm i'm not and I, from the beginning of sort of award season when the first nominations were coming out, like I think I'm on record as saying that I thought this is the front runner for best picture at the Oscars. I, I, I honestly did at the time and I still do. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, like, look, the Golden Globes is kind of the the glossier, like it's all about the booby stars and stuff like that and, and the celebrities. And, and I think that going with Tarantino for screenplay makes sense because he's, you know, a celebrity director. He's a, he's the closest thing you have to a celebrity screenwriter out there. Um, and so I think that the Golden Globes probably took that into account. But, you know, it's Quentin Tarantino. You could award him for any sort of uh, screenplay that he writes. He's His name carries a lot of weight. And I think that this movie is getting a lot of love, more so than a lot of his other movies, because I think it's 
an easier film to watch than a lot of his other movies for an average moviegoer. Um, and I think that, you know, a lot of people probably even amongst the HFPA and, and Academy members certainly know Tarantino, appreciate Tarantino, understand the unique filmmaking style that he has and the, the you know, immeasurable contribution that he's made to recent film. But his films still aren't for all tastes. Like there's, there's no denying that movies like Django Unchained and, and you know, the hateful Aiden and inglorious bastards. If you're, if you are someone who does not uh, take to on-screen violence, then like you're not, you're going to shy away from these films. And certainly once upon a time in Hollywood does have violence. I mean, the, the end of the movie. Um, but I think that in general, the shaggy dog style of the tone of the film the it's just kind of a fun hangout movie like we've talked about the movie star energy radiating from uh, you know Leonardo DiCaprio Brad Pitt Margot Robbie um the meticulous recreation of, of Hollywood right where where a lot of these people probably live um and in old Hollywood maybe a time that they you know wish that they could go back to just like Tarantino seems to um i think all of these things are adding up to what is probably you know Tarantino's most accessible film from a you know, average moviegoer, person in the Academy slash HFPA standpoint. And, and so I think that, yeah, I, I'm not I'm not too surprised. I mean, look, there there were some good nominees for, for screenplay. I think that Noah Baumbach had a chance for a marriage story, certainly. But I think that I'm never going to be surprised at Quentin Tarantino winning a screenwriting award because it's Quentin Tarantino. So that's, that's ultimately what it boils down to. Yeah, maybe I shouldn't be surprised because, again, it's – when you think about the HFPA, I don't know. I, maybe I'm making some broad assumptions here, but I still think that Noah Baumbach has a better chance of winning uh, at the Oscars than he does at, at the Golden Globes for best screenplay. Yeah. One, because there's two separate categories uh, for screenplays at the Oscars. But two, because I think the Oscar body is going to – like that marriage marriage stories screenplay, I think is just going to hit home with the Oscar voting body a little bit more than it will at the Golden Globes relative to Tarantino. Like, does is Tarantino's script still going to hit home with the Oscar voting body? Absolutely, it definitely will. Still will Scorsese, or I guess it's Zalian's, technically not Scorsese's screenplay. And, and I think Bong's will as well. I think Bong is kind of a distant, a distant fourth there. And then, I mean, I think the fifth nominee, again, it, this doesn't translate apples to apples because there's there's 10 nominees. Yeah. The but the point is, I think that as much as I would, I would have liked to also see Parasite win something outside of best foreign language film, uh, I would. I wasn't surprised that Bong didn't win this one. I just really thought that Noah Baumbach uh, had a better chance. And then when I thought about it a little bit more, I think, well, maybe maybe the Oscar voting body would be more receptive to that as well. But anyway, Once Upon yeah. a Time in Hollywood, I think very deserving uh, of its three awards. It's one of those things where it, it's not universally loved by critics. It's not universally loved by by moviegoers either. I mean, it, it, like you said, it's more. It's definitely more accessible. And you know, the first two hours and fifteen minutes of it is is probably you know much beloved by almost everyone it's one of those things and then of course the ending you know it wouldn't be it would you wouldn't look at it and think it was a tarantino movie without the ending right if you talk about, mm -hmm. about the that auteur status it, it wasn't that the movie had to end that way but it wouldn't have had the same auteur flair of tarantino without that ending and then of course the ending you know it does spoil the movie for some people uh it makes the movie for other people and, and so i think it's one of those things where a lot of people really like a lot of this film at the very least. And so you have to give it cr some credit for that. And then that's maybe why it played so well, especially with the HFPA, who, if I'm not wrong, has, you know, showered Tarantino in, in love in the past, maybe more so than even the Oscars have. But we'll see how that plays out over time. I still think Brad Pitt, you know, is, is a lock for yeah. Best Supporting Actor, almost uh, almost a lock there, if not definitely a lock. 
um, as a, a couple other categories that we'll talk about a little bit later as well. And then, yeah, is it is it the front runner for best picture right now? Probably on the merits. Is it way out ahead of everyone else? I don't think so. I think if anything, the fact that 1917 won uh, in the in the drama category means that the race is kind of even more wide open than we thought it was. Yeah. And, and I think that that makes it for exciting because as much as we thought that the, a lot of these races were going to be tight going into you know the Oscars a month from now, I think that they're less tight than we might have thought that that they were. Uh, and, and, and look, I still think Parasite even has a chance for Best Picture. Yeah. I think. Yeah. Um, there are a lot of films in the conversation. Once upon a time in Hollywood, right? It, it's the favorite. I think it, you know it, it's pretty much universally agreed on, to, agreed upon to be the favorite right now. But I think people were leaning Roma last year um, going into the Oscars, and it ended up being Green Book. So I think you know predictions only mean so much. Yeah, but if you look at it through the lens of that as well, I think that Once Upon a Time is closer to Green Book than it is yeah. to Roma and Parasite's mm-hmm. closer to Roma than it is to Green Book. That's um, probably true. Yeah, which is which is what it is, I guess. Is but the, I mean, the, yeah, do they want to write the do they want to write the wrong from last year or what you know what was perceived as a wrong like because, you know, they've done weird things before like giving uh The Shape of Water a, a best picture win, which is definitely more of a Roma par- in in the Roma Parasite category yep. if we're if we're grouping movies that way. Um yeah. So, I, yeah, I, I don't know. It's just you can't predict these things. Yeah, I mean, the real we all know that the real reason that Roma didn't win last year is because they couldn't give another Mexican filmmaker the Best Picture Award. So uh, they just dominated. The, they didn't uh, want Sean Penn to make a weird comment again. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, no, I think you're right about Parasite definitely still having a chance, obviously, with the Golden Globe, with the Golden Globes not nominating foreign language films for the Best Picture categories. Uh, it's always going to be one of those things where you got to look at what is in the best foreign language category and should any of those be included in the conversation and, and parasite should absolutely be uh, be be in that conversation. And, and I think that Bong's speech last night, I mean, I guess we're kind of jumping the gun and going ahead and talking about parasite, but I think Bong Joon-ho's speech last night when he was, you know, receiving the best foreign language film award, I think that's going to boost his chances as well. I mean, a very short but incisive speech around if you take away you know, the one inch barrier that is subtitles at the bottom of your screen, you're going to find a world of incredible cinema. And I think that that speaks volumes to the way that I felt, you know, watching Roma last year, watching Parasite this year, even watching Pain and Glory, you know, did miss out on my top 20, but a fantastic film by Pedro Almodovar. And I haven't seen Portrait of a Lady on Fire, but I mean, that's in most of the critics that I follow the closest, like top five list of the year. So I'm not even sure if it's going to end up being nominated at the Oscars because it's not, I, I think Les Miserables ended up being the French France nomination. Submission, yeah. Yeah. Which is well, bizarre to me, but you know, maybe it's one of those weird things. Like, I don't know if that movie is going to resonate with the Oscar voting body, but what if that movie like ends up getting a wild card nomination for best picture? I think that's very unlikely, but it's a very strong year for foreign language films. You know, I promise that we talk about this in a little bit more detail. And I think now is the right time to do that. And, you know, I want, every year when I make kind of the rundown for this episode, I do winners and losers. And, you know, this year, yeah, Irishman, biggest loser for sure, being completely shut out of all its categories when it was, you know, much hyped and, and expected to win at least one award. And I decided this year to go a different direction. And I think that is Netflix is the biggest loser because not only did the Irishman completely shut out, but like I mentioned, Marriage Story only getting the Best Supporting Actress award for Laura Dern. You know, missing out on best actor, best actress, best screenplay, best picture, because it had the most nominations, I believe, going into tonight. Uh, and then, you know, yes, no one really expected the two popes to make any noise, but it also but, got, yeah, yeah, it also blanked. And so overall, I mean, we're just talking about the movies here, but even in, in 
TV shows, the fact that it only got one award for Olivia Coleman's role in The Crown is a huge disappointment uh, for Netflix for sure. And I think, you know, if you look at past years and you talk about Netflix's coming out party and people really think it's going to happen this year, or at least they were talking about it as if it were going to happen this year. And, you know, the Oscars is still the bread and butter. That's like that. I shouldn't say that's right. The Oscars is still the target for Netflix. Like they'll, they'll take one Golden Globe uh, in exchange for, you know, a handful of Oscars. Absolutely. Especially in these major categories. But Scott, are you a little bit down on, on Netflix chances, not only for the Irishman, but you know, for marriage story, two popes. I don't know. It, it, it is strange. And like, I agree with your comments that I think like something like marriage story is probably, will probably play better with the Oscar voters than it will with the, the golden globe voters and probably the same with the Irishman. But um, it, it is strange because I think these a couple of months ago, a month ago, we would have said these are two big front runners. And I, I just wonder if the Irishman's length has heard it because it is like the number one talking point about the movie. It seems as much that movie needs an editor, much to my chagrin, um, because I mean, I think I think you can have a difference of opinion on on how much or whether anything needs to be cut from the movie. But like, regardless, you have to actually see the movie to make that determination and i think some people are probably being intimidated by the long runtime i mean ricky gervais was joking about it in the monologue last night i think it's when when Martin people are, says he was laughing and nodding to him yeah so. when when people are think about the irishman one of the first things if not the first thing they're thinking of is that this is a three and a half hour movie um and so yeah i mean that that uh i probably has played a role in this maybe more so than it being a netflix film uh, two popes, like we said, like I don't think it really had a chance. As for Marriage Story, I don't know. Like it, it's it's strange because it does seem like a, an Oscar caliber film, but maybe the fact that it's hard to watch um, is part of the reason why. Maybe pe- certain people, who, certain voters, are reliving their <laughs> trauma of maybe going through painful divorces themselves and w- watching this film and maybe you know some of them are are identifying then with it as a being an authentic portrayal but maybe others are like i don't need to see this on screen uh it's difficult to know uh what the reactions are are like to that movie but i don't know i I just think there are specific things which each one of these films with each one of these films that maybe you can attribute it losing out more so than the fact that it was a netflix film and again we still have the oscars to come and i i think at least one of these movies will fare better at the Oscars. Yeah, I, I think it's one of those things where I agree with what you're saying and, and just kind of how we've looked back and, and pointed to certain elements of the Irishman or marriage story. We didn't really talk about two pups at all, but for those two films and, and th- talk about ways, you know, maybe this is why it didn't get the love that we thought it might get at the Gold Globes. I think that that story could just as easily be flipped on its head in a month's time. Let's say, you know, by some radical thing that once upon a time in Hollywood just gets shut out of boards. You can look back and say, well, you know what? Maybe the ending hurt it. Like, even though we loved the ending, maybe the ending, maybe the ending hurt it and kept it from getting awards. So I think that is what makes it an interesting run on, you know, on the run of things last night, clearly, uh, well, not clearly, I should say those are two possibilities as to why it didn't win awards, but in a month's time, you know, it, it could be, it could be a completely different story. And, and, and really all we, all we can do is speculate about that. I thought it was really interesting. I really thought that Netflix would win more than one award in the movie category across those two films. Obviously, I was rooting more for Marriage Story than The Irishman, just based on you know my personal experiences watching those films. But it's one of those things where you know you 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 hypothesize an interesting point about Marriage Story. You found it quite difficult to watch in certain scenes. I found it 
difficult but enjoyable to watch in, in a way, or I should say satisfying, you know, difficult yeah. but satisfying to watch. And a lot, you know, I haven't listened to every single, you know, voting member of the Oscars or every critic in Hollywood in Hollywood or, or New York or whoever, wherever they might be. But even, you know, everyone who who sees Marriage Story that I hear talk about it and who has been through divorces, they're always talking about like, you know, I didn't really know if I really wanted to see this film, but when I watched it, I just felt really touched in a positive way by it because it, it so tenderly portrays, I think, both sides. And that's maybe a, way, a strange way to describe it, but I think it so fairly treats both sides that in some ways it, it universally speaks to people in those situations in, in a positive way. I mean, not maybe universal is probably too strong of a word, but widely, you know, touches people that, it, that see it, it who have similar experiences to that. And so I don't know if the HFPA feels different. Again, this is a 90 person voting body and, you know, how, a, you know, a handful of those people are affected by a specific film massively swings the awards votes, right? Whereas if you have a handful of people who feel that way in the Oscar voting body, it makes no difference whatsoever, hardly, uh, in, in a pool of eight or 9,000. So again, it, it's little swings that we're talking about here, little things on the margin that might affect uh, in a tight Oscar race yeah. might affect your ultimate wins and losses. Those things even out a little bit on the bigger, the bigger voting bodies and like the Oscars. Yeah. And, and look, I don't want, I mean, it's probably a stretch, but like, like you said, it could be a little thing sometimes, and maybe the sort of Twitter discourse around marriage story and the whole, you know, this one particular scene, the fight scene going around on Twitter. And um, if that's all you see of the film, might not really make you want to watch the entire film, even though I think the entire film is on a different level. And uh, while I think it's, you know, like I said, I think it's probably a little bit of a stretch to say that that is affecting, you know, the vote in a drastic way. Who knows what, you know, it could it could have affected a few members and, and ultimately come down to why they uh, didn't even see this film perhaps. But what I will say is that watching the pre-show, they had this little segment of HFPA members talking about their favorite films of the last two decades. And one member said that her favorite film of the past two decades was bad Santa. Um, and so I think that probably tells you the level that some of these people are operating on here. So pr honestly, probably trying to go into their, their mindset is just a fool's errand. They probably voted for Booksmart for Best Picture then, so I don't have a problem with that. Yeah. Um, no, they probably <laughs> voted for Good Boys. Yeah, so I think it's, it's things like that I think can, can definitely make the difference. You take a slightly more negative or jaded perspective on whether or not Oscar voters or awards voters are watching the movies. I think that maybe they don't watch all of them. I, I doubt that they watch all of them, but I think that most people are going to be watching Marriage Story. Un, yeah, uh, Marriage Story, oh. The Irishman, 1917 like i think most people are as long as the irishman is and maybe they'll, they're resentful of it for it i still think that they are watching these movies because they are the front runners they're going to be watching once upon a time in hollywood because there's so much talk about it now you know parasite being a foreign language film i think it's very possible that fewer people watch that film you know things like that i think that movies further down the list like something like i don't know like take judy for example it probably probably no one's watching that movie and just voting for renee zellweger anyway because everyone's telling them to vote for her. but yeah, with the top movies in the best picture category, the best movie, like the widely considered best movies of the year, I think the voters are going to be watching this film. But maybe, maybe I'm too optimistic I, look, about it. I, yeah, I just have I have no reason to not be cynical about anything related to the Oscars. So yeah, that's fair enough. Well, speaking of Renee Zellweger, I think a couple just want to talk about the acting awards in general, and you know, all the talk going in was that Renee Zellweger is you know an, an odds-on favorite, almost a deadlock for best actress at the Oscars. Not to say that it was totally validated last night by her winning the Golden Globe, but 
she won the Golden Globe for Best Actress in a in a motion picture drama last night. Scott, do you think that Renee Zellweger will definitely win the Oscar, or do you think that you know someone else like a Scarlett Johansson uh, or or an Aquafina who won the Best Actress motion picture com- musical or comedy? Do you think either of them have a chance of stealing this from her? When you get your Oscar ballots, my friends, when you get your you know Oscar ballots to do your predictions, when you fill out your your uh, ballot for our some like it Scott Pool that we're going to be doing again. Go straight to the Best Actress category and check Renee Zellweger. First thing you do when you vote, because this is the stone-cold lock in terms of the acting categories. She has been the favorite throughout awards season. I think the only thing which would have, you know, maybe halted... I don't even think they're campaigning for her. I think that she's she's just there. Yeah. I think that the only thing, the only thing that halts me a little bit is, or would have been if she had not won the Golden Globe, but... She won the Golden Globe. Um, and, you know, I, I think things will continue apace at the SAG Awards. I think she's going to take that. Um, and, yeah, like, this is just the type of, you know, portrayal of a real world. And not just any real world figure, but a well-known, beloved Hollywood actress. Um, it's sort of the disappearing act type performance, which I think awards bodies tend to um take kindly to and so while you know there are some certainly some other really excellent performances in the category between uh scarlett johansson he mentioned and saoirse ronan and uh you know a a lot of other candidates i think that this is renee's to lose and i I honestly would be stunned stunned if she doesn't take it home at the oscar yeah i think that's probably a, a fair analysis of the situation do you feel the same about the best actor category that you have joaquin phoenix who was touted as being the favorite, not by the same margin that Renee Zellweger was, but touted as the favorite, comes in last night, wins Best Actor, Best Actor Motion Picture Drama. Yes, Taron Egerton won Best Actor Motion Picture Musical or Comedy, much to my chagrin. Thought Leo should have won that, won that one. I, I knew that he wouldn't. I didn't know it was going to be Taron Egerton, but I didn't think that Leo was going to win that. Uh, but Scott, is Joaquin also a lock for Best Actor, do you think? Yeah, I mean, if this is the race that we're having at the Oscars, admittedly, I'm I'm very unthrilled about the best actor race if it's between Ed, Taron Egerton and uh, and Joaquin Phoenix. But yeah, I, I this isn't a lock on the same level that Renee Zellweger is, but I tend to lean towards saying, yes, Joaquin, this is Joaquin's to lose as well. I think that it is the number one talking point about Joker. Um, I honestly, like I'm sure Joker will be nominated some technical categories, I don't think it's necessarily going to get the best picture nomination, despite um, getting nominated here in the best picture of drama. Again, you had some stuff like Parasite not being eligible that I think you have to take into account at the Oscars. But, um, with, you know, with respect to, to Joaquin Phoenix, like I said, it's the talking point of this movie. Even people like us who didn't really like Joker, you know, ha- can appreciate and can admit that uh, that Joaquin Phoenix gave a really impressive performance in. I mean, look, Joaquin Phoenix has been one of the best actors in the biz for a while. I should feel better about him winning this award, but it's just hearing the name of the film called, which I think leaves a little bit of a bad taste in my mouth. Um, But I think we're going to have to get used to it because it's going to be called a a couple more times this award season. Yeah. You know, I wish that Adam Driver had more of a chance against him. I don't I don't have the faith to to bet on him to win this award. I, I mean, I think it's an amazing performance. I think having rewatched it a second time, especially the the scene in the bar in New York where he sings uh, the song that he sings in, in that moment after everything that he goes through, you know, as an actor, 
uh, in his performance and the film, everything that he goes through and to cap off their performance with that scene. I think it's, I think it is better than what Joaquin did with the Joker, but at the same time, I reckon exactly to your point, I recognize that what Joaquin did is amazing. And I just don't see anyone else winning this except for, for Joaquin. I'd love to hear, just to throw it out there again, just because I'm singing its praises at every moment. I would love to see Adam Sandler get a nomination for uncut gems. Uh, I don't think he has any chance of winning, but I would love to see that. But that's the last thing I'll say on that topic. Yeah. I would like to see it too, but yeah, I don't think there's anything in awards season that I've seen to indicate that that is, that is going to happen. But you know, a, a lot of people are, pro- are projecting actually, despite again, something else that, that no one, you know, n- nothing in awards season has indicated. This is that Song Kang Ho might have a chance at, at, at nomination either for actor or supporting actor. I'm not sure what they're campaigning him campaigning for him in, but um maybe sort of a similar similar to like Marina Di Tavera's sort of sh- shock nomination or even even Yelitsa Aparicio, right? Who we thought had a decent chance as best actress last year, but not necessarily a lock by any stretch of the imagination. Maybe the Oscars are going to kind of do a similar thing in a quest to be diverse once again and and go with with Song Kang Ho here. But I, again, I don't know if that would be a best actor or best supporting actor nomination. And either way, I don't think Sandler. I think Sandler's on the outside looking. Yeah, unfortunately, I, I'd agree with that. So I know that'd be cool. It'd be cool to just see Parasite get to rack up more nominations. I'd be totally on board with that. I think if diversity is the question that the Oscars are trying to answer, I think they have other options this year. I mean, they have Eddie Murphy and Dolomite is my name. They have a few other options. Uh, even Susan though those Zhao, are options. yeah. Yeah, Susan Zhao probably getting more hype than, uh, the, than Song Kang Ho. But maybe that's changed. I mean, you say if more people are talking about Song Kang Ho, I don't think more people are talking about Shuzhen Zhao. Yeah, and you have Aquafina. Like we, I think you have to consider now: is she, in terms of getting a nomination, right? Because because we, I mean, Stellwerger is going to win, but um, it it does this increase her chances of getting a nomination because obviously she did win for best actress in a comedy or musical, and I don't know that she would would have been in a lot of people's yeah. top five prior to the Golden Globes, but I think now. She probably is going to sneak in there. Yeah, I think she has a pretty good chance of, of sneaking in as well. That definitely boosted her chances of getting a nomination. But talking about some a couple of their acting performances, I mean, you have Laura Dern winning for Best Supporting Actress, and you have Brad Pitt winning for Best Supporting Actor. Again, I think of these two, this time the male role is going to be more the lock. I think that Brad Pitt, yes, he's going to have some competition in Best Supporting Actor. But again, I think he's, at this point, winning the Golden Globe. He's a safer bet than than some other uh, categories. If you wanted to pick someone who you really thought was going to win the Oscar, do you see anyone sneaking in to disrupt, you know, Brad Pitt's first acting Oscar this year? Probably not. I think the Irishman actors are going to kind of cancel each other out. I think Tom Hanks probably is your number two there. Um, but e- even still, I think that. Uh, Brad's performance was the one from this movie that everyone, you know, was praising the, the most heavily. And because this is a, the favorite for best picture, in my opinion, I think they're going to want to show some acting love for it as well. Um, and I think that Brad is probably the the most likely uh, benefactor there. And so, um, yeah, I think, I think he's a little bit more of a lock than Laura Dern, but I think Laura Dern is, is pretty close to a lock as well. Um, JLo maybe um, has a chance to steal it from her. I think that's probably her her biggest competition. But I think between what Laura Dern did in the movies this year and in Marriage Story and in Little Women 
And then also on TV with Big Little Lies, like people, it felt like people were talking about Laura Dern like almost all year long. Um, and so I think that's something that even though the Academy doesn't, you know, vote on TV shows or anything like that, I think that's something that's going to be in their head when they think about, uh, you know, who, who, who had the best year here. And so I think that um, Laura Dern is going to be, is, is going to benefit from having done those other sort of attention grabbing roles this year as well. Yeah, and I think she was, you know, admirable, if not one of the best parts, less so for Little Women, but for Big Little Lies for me. I mean, she was one of the best parts of Big Little Lies in season two. I think that she was outstanding in Marriage Story. I think that I I don't want to count J-Lo out yet, but I think that if J-Lo was going to win, she was going to win at the Golden Globes, not the Oscars. Just personally, I think that especially going up against particularly Laura Dern in the Academy voting body. I mean, Laura Dern, you know, she she's a name that really resonates in Hollywood and JLo as much as she's maybe admired in Hollywood and admired across the country, of course, for uh, all the different parts of her career. I think that when it comes down to who's voting, does she, does JLo have a chance? Yes. But is Laura Dern in, in clear pole position right now? I think, I think that she is. Yeah, no, I, I think that's true. And I think it, it it's almost in, it almost it's almost reminiscent of like Sylvester Stallone or like Eddie Murphy getting a nomination for Dream Girls back in the day of like here's someone who has had a long career but is not someone we think of as like a you know great actor a, a Oscar someone who's always getting considered for awards and anything like that and then they do go out there and do it and do a great role like J Lo did in Hustlers but at the end of the day the nomination is kind of the award I think because maybe they can't overcome that association that people have in their heads of like Eddie Murphy. Oh, he's Beverly Hills cop or like, you know, Sylvester Stallone, he's Rambo. Um, and so I think JLo maybe be, that may be hurt by that as well. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think that Adam Sandler would face the same music yeah. if he, if he got nominated for best actor again, people were talking about JLo winning best supporting actress earlier this year. So it's a different story than what, what with Adam Sandler, but I think they would face similar hurdles uh, when it came to the actual voting for the award, uh, less the nomination set. I think we're on the same page there. I agree. Cool. Okay, last acting performance. Uh, the, sorry, this isn't even acting, but last kind of competitive award that I want to talk about is Best Animated Feature. I mean, all things considered, a weak year compared to last year for animated movies. Last year with, with Spider-Verse winning, uh, it was, I mean, the best animated movie uh, at the very least, for this, for the sake of this podcast, the best animated movie since the Lego movie, but maybe also competitive and the best animated movie of the decade, right? Since, you know, Toy Story 3, maybe. I don't know. It's been a long time since since a movie of, of, that, of that quality animated feature. But, you know, this year, to me, Toy Story 4 felt like a lock. And honestly, I still think it is the favorite at the Oscars. But Missing Link coming in here, getting the upset. This is a stop-motion animated uh feature from Leica, who is the company that the the Travis Knight is one of the big guys over there. And I think his father as well uh, helps run Leica, or at least help found it. And they had Kubo and the Two Strings. They've had a, a few other animated films, but this is the first time they've, well, I don't know if it's the first time they've won a major award, but it was a huge surprise that a movie like this, Missing Link, which I don't remember if you saw earlier this year, Scott, but I did. I did yeah. uh, and it was good, but not great. And I and really not of the same quality as Toy Story 4 uh, for me. Or honestly, Frozen 2. I thought Frozen 2 was better than it as well. Uh, but Scott, biggest shock of the night, hands down. No question. Asked. Like I thought this movie had zero chance uh, winning the Golden Globe. I still think 
I still think it would be lucky to get nominated at the Oscars. Uh, but Scott, what did you think of this? Well, I think it's going to be nominated at the Oscars. Every single Leica movie has been nominated for Best Animated Feature, and I don't think this one will be any different, especially having won the Best Animated Feature at the Golden Globes. But uh, as far as winning, yeah, maybe, maybe it's not necessarily, certainly not a lock after the, even after this. I was leaning more towards thinking Frozen 2 just because I think of the box office success that Frozen 2 has had, um, maybe, maybe as being the the front runner here. But regardless, I, even though like I, I'm kind of with you on Missing Link, I think that it was good, not great, and that uh, Toy Story 4 was a better film. Like I think it's cool that Leica won this. Like I said, they, every single one of their movies has been nominated for an Oscar, but they haven't won anything. And they're very well regarded in terms of animation. They're doing something different than I think Disney or Pixar or DreamWorks or any of the other studios are doing. And so I, I think it's cool that the HFPA at least appears to be paying attention to something different in animation, because I think like, again, I'm going to bring it up, but the Lego movie was something different in animation when it came along and got ignored. Yeah. And I think it's awesome as well. Like, like I said, I think it's so cool for a stop motion animated uh, house to be to be getting nominated could be nominated let alone getting awards and the fact that it does win is awesome it's just disappointing that kubo didn't win and this wins because kubo i think is a much better movie personally in my opinion and as for what you were saying about the box office i think you're right i mean toy story 4 still has grossed at least roughly the same amount as frozen 2 of course frozen 2 is more temporally relevant it's closer in in time to to the awards that maybe that's people are talking about and as good and as impressive as toy story 4 was it hasn't stayed in the conversation like a Toy Story 3 did. I think that's just because the franchise ended and then it came back and and that was just the nature of it. It was it was a very good fourth entry into the franchise, but it didn't have the mem- it hasn't stuck with me like, you know, Toy Story 3 or Toy Story 2 uh did when they came out. Obviously Toy Story 2 I was much younger, but Toy Story 3, you know, didn't stick with me. Uh Toy Story 4 didn't stick with me like Toy Story 3 did and, and didn't have the same it did have an emotional punch at the end, but it didn't have the same emotional punch, I think, as Toy Story 3 did. And so maybe that's hurting. I still think it's the favorite at the Oscars, uh, but it's really cool to see something like like, like a like a Lake of film, to your point, getting getting this award. Yeah. All right. Just to round out the last few things, there's like three non-competitive award things to talk about. Ricky Gervais, uh, opening monologue and just general performance as host. And then the two non-competitive awards, the Cecil Beat DeMille Award, which was taken home by Tom Hanks. And the oh Carol Burnett Award, which is the first, I guess the second time it's been awarded because the, the first time was last year, although it was awarded to Carol Burnett uh, mm-hmm. this year, Ellen DeGeneres getting it. Of these three sort of longer form speeches, one of them, of course, being a stand up performance in the form of Ricky Gervais here, uh, which one stood out to you the most? Yeah, I think it's definitely worth talking about Ricky Gervais. I mean, I think that Tom Hanks and Ellen, honestly, they gave, you know, the, the classy sort of speeches that you would expect from from those people who are you know long long established hollywood staples i think yeah yeah no i i think that like there was nothing unexpected in any of those as for ricky gervais i just think the discourse surrounding this uh you know his monologues and everything has been pretty hilarious because uh a lot of people on twitter seem very like i tweeted this out earlier today but it is really like that drill tweet uh about you know and one more thing uh, do, please don't put in the newspaper that I'm not that I got mad. I'm not mad. Like there seems to be a lot of people on Twitter telling us get, getting mad about how not mad they were about Ricky Gervais, uh, you know, and his his jokes about you know really putting Hollywood on blast for sort of 
posing like political posturing that doesn't really mean anything, hypocrisy, um, you know, calling out specific people like Leonardo DiCaprio and his relationships with younger um, you know, so women, women and stuff like that. It was it was great. Um, I enjoyed it. Like, I think I I liked seeing a little bit of um, gravity brought to the room because I think. A lot of people like th- this is a thing that a lot of people don't like about award shows, right? Is that they just seem so self-congratulatory and it's it's all actors and actresses and, and celebrities getting up there and congratulating themselves and each other and then making political speeches and stuff like that, which like, okay, if that's what you want to use your platform for, then fine. But I think Ricky Gervais has just as much right to use his platform as host of the Golden Globes to say, look, you, you know, these political speeches number one, maybe don't have a place here. And number two are maybe pretty hypocritical considering, you know, some of the people that certain, you know, celebrities associate themselves with, or the, you know, things that the things that they've said, stuff like that. Um, I I think that a lot of it can come off as just pompous posturing from um, Hollywood. And I I think that, you know, I'm seeing mixed reactions on Twitter from like one side of my Twitter is, is, you know, like I said, getting very mad about how not mad they are. Um, and then the other side is, um, kind of like, Hey, this was pretty great. Like he, he put everyone on blast. These people need to be put in their place and stuff like that. Um, and I have to think if I'm Ricky Gervais and I'm seeing all of these tweets from people who are, who are quite angry, uh, or, or just, you know, very insistent on how unfunny the jokes were. I have to think I did my job probably because I think his job and what he probably set out to do was to rile these people up. Uh, and I don't think, while I don't think that anyone is going to learn a lesson from anything that he said, um, I, I think that he probably feels that he accomplished his mission of uh, make, making some people in that room angry. Um, and, you know, I, I say hats off to him because I laughed. I thought I thought it was funny. I think people shouldn't take this stuff so seriously. And I think they they should be able to look at what Ricky Gervais did. And uh, maybe if you don't agree with every single thing that he said, I think like it's comedy again. Right. And, and some of these people objecting, I think are, are the same type of people who in other contexts would stand up for the right of comedians to say a lot of things. So, um, I, I, yeah, that's, that's kind of my take on, on, on the whole Ricky Gervais thing. I think people are unsurprisingly outraged because people are outraged about everything nowadays. But, um, as with a lot of these situations, the outrage probably isn't justified. Yeah, I, I will say the most absurd joke that he went for that just didn't work for me, and about the only one that didn't work for me was the joke about Judy Dench. Oh yeah, no, that one was that one was a stinker. <laughs> yeah, that one was bad, and it went on for about thirty seconds longer than it should have. Yeah. I mean, the fact that it, NBC like you know like bleeped out thirty seconds could tell, should tell you all you need to know yeah. about what that joke was. Uh, it was uh, it was a tough one, but besides that, I thought it was pretty funny, and I think that he set the tone well by saying very early on that. Oh, I don't really care what you guys think because I'm never hosting this one again anyway. So he said that before, I think, too. And I, you know, I still wouldn't be surprised to see him come back in the future. And I kind of hope he does just to see how everyone's reactions and see how mad they get. Yeah. Um, but like I say, it's cool. It's cool to see someone call them out on their BS in in a room like where he I mean, it's it's confrontational, right? He's sitting there in front of all of them and he's just saying what he thinks, so, yeah, especially at the Golden yeah. Globes where the HFPA like to really. I think shower the stars. Butter them up, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but anyway, no, I think it was funny. The opening monologue worked for me for the most part. I mean, 
obviously we didn't have a monologue last year at the Oscars. We'll see if we have one this year at the Oscars, but yeah, this was nice. I liked it. It worked well for me. And the golden globes does not fall victim to being an over a, a four and a half hour award show. So the fact that it ran five minutes over, uh, maybe because of his opening monologue, it doesn't matter to me. Uh, I will say, you know, a couple of the landmark speeches, Tom Hanks, I think I got more uh, chills from the sizzle reel uh, of his movies than uh, a super cut of his movies more than his speech. I thought his speech was about what you'd expect from someone receiving the Cecil B. DeMille Award. Uh, but the one that really got me is Ellen. Ellen DeGeneres' speech receiving the Carol Burnett Award. I mean, I, I thought it started on such a hilarious note. I mean, she's just she's so funny. Yeah, I don't, she not really every is. not everyone I talked to loved her stand up special last year, which actually got a pretty long uh, feature in, in her like supercut uh, before her award. Uh, last year is I think it's like be I can't remember the name of the the standup special it was like something about um, being normal or something like that I can't remember what it is but anyway I thought that was super funny not all my friends thought it was funny but I thought it was very funny I thought she was hilarious starting out and then you know she had this effortless to, like switch from being you know very funny genuinely funny to being very genuinely Ellen and I think that that sums up her entire career so well and as long as she is making her talk show as long as she's making TV shows or series for, I think she's doing it for Peacock or for HBO Max. I can't remember which one she's producing shows for. Maybe HBO Max. Um, I hope that uh, she keeps doing what she's doing because I think she's great and I think the speech was the best of the night. Yeah, I liked her joke about uh, everyone who watches my show knows that I'm an open book, so I'd like to thank my husband, Mark, and our children, (laughs) such and such. That that made me crack up. Yeah, no, that was was very funny. Uh, I just love the lingering camera shot on Portia as well. Uh, during that was mm-hmm. hilarious. Uh, I'm trying to just think of anything else. I guess I, you know, you talk about political speeches. Michelle Williams probably won the night if you had to take take political speeches. Uh, you're rolling your eyes, Scott. Uh, I thought that th- maybe the example that she used is going to rub some people the wrong way, but I think the overall message of telling women to go out and vote in their own self-interest, whatever that means for them, not, not calling out a political affili- affiliation on that, just go out and vote. I think that was a message worth hearing in, in this because She's not saying go out and vote for X person. She's just saying go out and vote. And I think that that's a good message. Patricia Arquette also had some some political yeah. statements to make as well. Yeah, I wasn't I wasn't surprised about that as well, considering like her absolute roast of Ricky Gervais uh, before and talking about I don't think there's anything funny about Ricky Gervais or uh, I think maybe that wasn't the exact quote. But uh, also like she just looks like she got, I mean, I don't know. Obviously do not know her at all. I don't I haven't watched honestly many of the things that she's won awards for the last couple of years, but she seems like such a sad person that I hope that something yeah, you, cheers her up. You'd be forgiven for maybe not focusing wholly on the speech when she was up there. Yeah. Uh, fair enough. All right. I think that'll just about do it uh, for our golden globes chat for this year. Scott, as is tradition, we'll be returning right after the break with some more movie questions to answer this year, all centered around a very, uh, a very consistent theme of, what we enjoyed about the last decade. I mean, we had our top 50 movies, or I guess top 20 movies of the decade, whatever the hell it was we did earlier this year, of the decade. We're going to be talking about some, a few other things. <laughs> a few other things now in the second half of the podcast, and when we come back, we'll get to that. Welcome back to this episode of Some Like It, Scott. As Scott alluded to before the break, we're going to be doing our 10 movie questions, or I think we have nine this time around, uh, like we you know, frequently do on this episode. 
usually they're sort of questions to, to let you get to know our film taste a little bit better. But uh, like Scott said, we're going to be doing something a little different and looking back on some of our decade favorites. Uh, of course, we did do our, our top 10 of the decade, which you should you can still check out on our podcast feed and, and go back and listen to that if you haven't heard it yet. But that didn't necessarily give us the platform to talk about, you know, a, a lot of other sort of favorite uh, moments of the decade in movies. So we're going to get to those in just a minute. But the first question that I want to ask Scott is one that we we ask every year um, and is one that we, we don't usually have success success with in terms of who we pick, but it is kind of become a tradition. So who is your actor or actress to watch in 2020? Hey, I just want you to speak for yourself because I picked Michael B. Jordan the first year. Maybe we're trying to go now for a little bit more niche picks when we decide yeah. on who to who to select. Because admittedly, he was a very known quantity, having been in Creed uh, and Fruitvale Station. But yeah, this year I'm going with. I'm actually staying consistent for my third year. I'm picking a African American actor or actress, and uh, this year I'm going with Taylor Russell. We saw her in Escape Room and Waves. I thought she was fantastic for. 90% of her performance in waves and the other 10% wasn't her fault because the movie just didn't really didn't really tie up satisfyingly in the end. I thought she was quite good in Escape Room. I know this movie you didn't catch, but I watched it about halfway through the year and it's getting its sequel later this year. She has a couple other projects in the works that don't have release dates. It's one of those things where maybe it'll get picked up this year. Maybe it'll float to next year. And I think that will ultimately depend on whether or not I was successful in my pick. But I'm going with Taylor Russell. I think that her performance in waves really stuck out to me and, and it's been one of those things like with Kel- Kelvin Harrison Jr. as well I think is one of those things that uh you know I could have easily picked Kelvin Harrison Jr. now that I think about it um Taylor Russell I think that she's someone to watch if not in the next 12 months uh in the next uh two years yeah that's a good pick and also someone that I considered uh but Scott you know you, you mentioned that you had had some success in picking Michael B. Jordan for this I have struck out both years um with Micah Monroe first first time around and then Brian Tyree Henry this past year, um, who was supposed to be in three movies, uh, one of which he was in for only one minute, which was Joker. The other was Child's Play, which kind of just came and went. And the other one was The Women in the Window, which didn't even get released this year. So uh, did not turn out to be the banner year that I was hoping for Brian. But because of that, I, I've tried to go a little bit, maybe more leaning more towards your Michael B. Jordan pick and go with someone who who certainly isn't totally under the radar and in fact was nominated for a golden globe last night. Um, but someone who I think probably you could say still qualifies for this category. And that is Ana de Armas. Uh, I think she is going to be my actor or actress to watch in 2020 because I want to be right about this for once. Um, obviously she's had some big credits like Blade Runner 2049 was kind of her breakthrough a couple of years ago. Um, and then knives out this year, she had basically a co-starring role alongside Daniel Craig um in in knives out and that's what she got the golden globe nomination for but i think she's far from a household name at this point um just on the strength of those two movies um but she has a big 2020 coming up scott she's listed uh as being in five movies of course uh one that we know is the james bond film uh, no time to die in which she's going to be playing maybe a a villain bond girl sort of of some sort um not sure didn't really get a, a full impression of her from the trailer She's a, she's Marilyn Monroe in Blonde. Right. I was going year? to yeah. I was going to put point that out. She is going to be playing Marilyn Monroe in the Blonde, which is the Andrew Dominic film about um, Marilyn Monroe, um, which probably you would think is going to be an Oscar movie for next year. But um, I who knows? So. 
but yeah, she's got she's got some other movies as well. The Adrian Lynn movie, um, Deep Water, which we've talked about before, Scott, is like Adrian Lynn known for making these sort of like erotic thrillers kind of. And I think this is supposed to be uh, this uh, of the same vibe. It's with her and Ben Affleck. Um, and, and then a couple other, uh, you know, lower attention grabbing movies. But um, nevertheless, with between with all those movies coming out, I think. Uh, she has a chance to really break out and make a splash this year, maybe even get herself in the Oscar race next year for particularly for that uh, Marilyn Monroe film. So that's my pick. Um, I'm, I'm expecting that this is much like the Madden curse. Something is going to happen to her now and, and she's not going to be able to uh, come through on some of these films, but uh, we'll see. Maybe this time next year, I'll be patting myself on the back. Hey, I think it's a great pick. It definitely leans more towards my Michael B. Jordan pick, but I, I think that's fine. I think that's fine. Um, I think people will know her from Knives Out this year, especially people who listen to our podcast. We've we've hyped that movie up a lot, but I think it's going to be interesting. You know, she wasn't, of course, the star. I mean, she was a starring role, but she didn't carry that movie with Blonde, especially. She's going to need to not necessarily carry the movie, but more of the weight of the movie is going to be on her shoulders. And so I think her year will hinge on that performance. Who knows what the quality of that movie will be, whether that movie as a whole will be in the Oscar conversation or if it's a, a Renee Zellweger and Judy kind of thing where uh, Ana de Armas gets in for this kind of central role. We saw it with Gary Oldman in The Darkest Hour, uh, other things like that, you know, those kind of iconic roles that uh, kind of sur- transcend kind of the overall uh, feeling of the movie. Uh, being maybe an average movie with a spectacular lead performance in it. I'd, I'd love to see her in the Oscar conversation next year. Yeah, Darkest Hour is one I want to rewatch. I actually think that maybe on reevaluation, it might be a better movie than I originally gave it credit for. But nevertheless, I think that's a good comparison. Um, yeah, and, and Lincoln is another one too, right? Of course, with um, Daniel Day Lewis. Lincoln kind of, is a, is a good movie, though, in my opinion. Like the movie I think itself that, is really good. Yeah, I'm saying that that might be your opinion, but I think critical consensus has waned on on Lincoln over time. Uh, I don't think it, people have thought it's held up that well, but Daniel Day Lewis's performance definitely does. Fair enough. Um, okay, Scott, now into our decade favorites. We're going to start with uh, some big uh, acting awards. So best performance by an actor this decade. Yeah, I mean, wow. This past I, I, decade. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm actually predicting what's going to be the best performance for the next decade. John Cho um, in The Grudge. <laughs> the only yeah, movie yeah. that's come out so far. Oh, man. Yikes. Uh, I think that it was one of those things looking back on the decade. I didn't even mean to segue this into us, but I was just talking about Daniel Day-Lewis uh, in Lincoln. It's not one of the ones that I'm talking about, but you could be forgiven for choosing that one because it's a fantastic performance. Daniel Day-Lewis, a uh, fantastic actor. I'm not going with any Daniel Day-Lewis performances, but I did want to have a couple honorable mentions I wanted to get there first. I cheated on one and picked him for a series rather than a movie. I got Tom Cruise in here just because he deserves more love for Mission Impossible. I'll give him an honorable mention there across multiple films. Paul Walter Hauser for Richard Jewell. I mean, it's it's too recent for me to say this is the best performance of the decade, but I think it's an incredible performance. And then uh, my last honorable mention, J.K. Simmons in Whiplash. I think absolutely phenomenal performance. That's a supporting role as opposed to these other ones that I've talked about. They're all lead roles, uh, but phenomenal, absolutely phenomenal uh, performance by an actor. But for me, there's only going to be really one answer. And it's the one that immediately popped into my mind. And maybe that's why for me, there really is only one answer. And that's Jake Gyllenhaal at Nightcrawler. I think it's an absolutely criminal he didn't get nominated for an Oscar uh, for this role, let alone, I mean, I think he should have won the Oscar too, in my opinion, but yeah, Jake Gyllenhaal has been in so many, has done so many fantastic performances, not, not just this decade, but you know, in his entire career, right. Spanning back to the two thousands, the knots. Uh, and I think that Nightcrawler might be the pinnacle 
of his career. I think it's just a phenomenal role as this very creepy. Um, I forget that what I guess they're called nightcrawlers, right? This this creepy nightcrawler who who ba- basically chases uh, police sirens and ambulances for the news story, not to help people. Uh, and what the journey that you go through with this character through L.A. Uh, over the course of one night or multiple nights—I can't remember—it's been it's been a minute since I've seen the film—is absolutely remarkable. Best best performance of the decade uh, for me, or at least my favorite performance by an actor this decade. Yeah, Scott, it's funny because you know you mentioned that there was an this was an oscar snub and so, somehow with only a year's worth of movies to choose from they they didn't pick jake gyllenhaal's performance and yet with 10 years of movies to choose from we have arrived at the same performance and, oh, wow. because i also picked jake gyllenhaal's performance in nightcrawler i think it's just undeniable for me i think i i was saying this earlier today when i was doing another show but um there this there's never been another character like this um i think that I can remember in, in the movies. And we talk about how Jake Gyllenhaal always plays a different guy in every single movie. It seems like he, like he plays someone different every single time out. Um, and I think that's never been more true than in this movie. It's, it's what, it's like a one of a, it, it is a one of a kind character that is instantly memorable almost from the moment he steps on the screen. And he, I think he struck the right balance of like creepy, but also like kind of funny and, and just exactly what you wanted to match the tone of, of, of yeah. the movie of Nightcrawler. And you don't know what to expect from it, which I think yeah. speaks to the tone of the movie because Dan Gilroy really creates an atmosphere where you don't really know what you're going to get out of this film. Right. Yeah. So the, this one to me was a pretty easy choice. I, I mean, I, I definitely could have thought of some honorable mentions. I think you, you picked a few that I, I like there. Um, but I, I, I for this one, I have some honorable mentions for other questions. But for this one and for the next one, I just picked only one. Um, but that transitions us to our next question, Scott, which I think is the natural next question. Best performance by an actress this decade. Who you got? Yeah. Again, for me, there was kind of one that jumped immediately to mind, but I think this one was closer for me and a tougher decision. I was kind of deciding between two and I'll get to those in a second, but I really thought Charlize Theron for Mad Max Fury Road deserves a shout out. I think that's an absolutely wonderful performance. It's one of those things where I came to the movie late. I only saw it for the first time this year, but going back and kind of thinking about the moment when you go into that movie, if you don't really know what it's about, you don't necessarily expect that Furiosa is going to be like the central part of that film and be the rock that you emotionally tie yourself to. I mean, you expect maybe a little bit more from Tom Hardy. And I think he does a great, he gives a great performance as well, but that movie just so is anchored around Charlize Theron's performance. And I think that that among countless other performances, she's in the last two decades. I mean, she's one of the best, if not the best uh, actress in Hollywood right now. I absolutely love her. I think Scarlett Johansson and her as well. I think one of the, one of the outstanding performances a little bit different there that it's more of a voice role than anything. Not if more, it is a voice role. Yeah. Uh, there, there is no physical performance, but that speaks to the quality of it. The fact that I'm thinking of it in that category, even though it's only a voice role uh, speaks to how amazing that performance was uh, by Scarlett Johansson there. But for me, the, this really came down this decade of, of female performances came down to Margot Robbie and I, Tanya. And then the one that ultimately won it for me, Jennifer Lawrence and silver linings playbook. Wow. Yeah, no, I, I would have gone the other way with that. Um, Margot is probably my number two. Again, I didn't pick any honorable mentions, um, but I think Margot would have been my number two. But um, Scott, my number one and the one that um, it probably won't come as a surprise because I do talk about this performance a lot. And one of my favorite actresses, if not my favorite, um, Rebecca Hall and what she did in the movie Christine, yep. uh, directed by Antonio Campos playing this character, well, character, playing the real-life person of Christine Chubbuck, um, I think channels something that I've never seen before on screen. And, and 
portray someone going through depression and you know loneliness in her life as well as any performance I've ever seen. It's she she really it's not it's one of those performances that like yes she captures the the affectations of Christine Chubbuck really well, um, but also she she makes this a, a rich and full portrait of this person. I think it it reminds me a lot honestly of of what. Tarantino did with Sharon Tate and, and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, right? Where you have this person, Christine Chubbuck, who is known for one reason, and that's because of how she died. She shot herself on live TV, and that's that's how she's known. Um, and with with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, of course, Tarantino kind of uh, allowed us to look at Sharon Tate in, in in a positive light, and you know, see see her see like the joy of her life and what could have been. Whereas I think um, Christine is a much darker film and looks at sort of the the hell that Christine was living to and living through and and maybe what uh, drove her to the decision that she ultimately made and yeah may, maybe it doesn't fully separate her from her death but I think still we we understand this person so much more than we ever have um, after you know the, this after watching this movie and. Uh, Rebecca Hall is is a huge reason why I think she is someone who generally pops up in supporting roles. And this is a movie where she got a lead role and really showed what she could do with it. Um, and so if you haven't checked this movie out and a lot of people haven't, um, please do. I think the movie is good. I think the performance is out of this world. Yeah. Jennifer Lawrence. Um, I haven't seen Christina. I, I it, it seems like my kind of film. I, I really should go back and watch it. I think that I would really enjoy it. And especially if the performance you're talking about. Uh, but yeah, I mean, Jennifer Lawrence for me, it was tough because I feel like Jennifer Lawrence had like, like a lot of this hype coming into this decade, coming off of Winter's Bone. I guess Winter's Bone was technically this decade, wasn't it? Yeah, I 2010, remember. I think. 2010, yeah. Well, at the start of the decade, starting something off with Winter's Bone, getting an Oscar nomination. And then she did Silver Linings Playbook along with Hunger Games. And I mean, Silver Linings Playbook for me is the best performance of her career so far. But really since she's, honestly, it's been a little bit of a letdown since then. Not that she's given bad performances, but She's just ended up in movies that have been very middling. I think even American Hustle, uh, David O. Russell's follow-up from Silver Lines Playbook, I thought that was a very mediocre movie. I mean, she gave an okay good to good performance in it, uh, but not the best movie. And then she kind of followed it up with Hunger Games and the X-Men franchise. Again, like just not giving herself uh, vehicles to really break through into the Oscar consideration again since, uh, since Silver Lines Playbook. And uh, I really hope that the next decade, uh, renews that hope and I think that's the direction she's trying to go by getting out of the franchises and going back to indie films I hope she's able to do that yeah it's a great performance I, I didn't mean to knock it by saying I would have picked Margot Robbie over it. oh no because um, Margot Robbie is incredible and in I Tanya absolutely. absolutely yeah um it, it's it's a great performance and you know we, you, you know that we both love that movie so uh, oh, yeah. that's a good choice no, um, I, didn't, I didn't think you were knocking it in the slightest <laughs> yeah um okay next question Scott the defining director of the decade. I kind of had two people in mind and I felt like you were going to pick one of them. So I went with the other one, but let me see if I was correct. Yeah. Th this was honestly, this was the toughest one for me because it's one of those things where like, if you look at the last few years, they ironic, not even, maybe this isn't ironic, but they released their first movie directorial movies in 2017 and their second here in 2019. I think that kind of the two defining people of the last few years in movies, I think are Greta Gerwig and Jordan Peele. Jordan but Peele if you look back at, if you go back and look at the whole decade, I think that you ended this wider conversation. Of, I think Chris Nolan is up there uh, as someone who may be a little bit stronger than knots. As much as I love Inception, uh, I think he's a little bit stronger than knots, and that would probably be his decade. But for me, 
the conversation boiled down to three people. One of them, Ryan Coogler, who I'll talk about a little bit more later because one of his films comes up as a, something I talk about a little bit later on. But I think he does a fantastic uh, – he's had a fantastic decade with Fruitvale Station, Creed, and Black Panther. And then – but again, I don't think that pushes him in. I think the Russo brothers are another defining director of this of this, uh, of this this decade with all the things that they've done in the MCU between uh, Winter Soldier, Civil War – and then the two uh, Avengers movies, Infinity War and Endgame. I think that they are absolutely one of the defining uh, directors of the decade. But for me, the one that I'm sure that you thought that I was going to say, uh, Denis Villeneuve. I think that what he's done this decade has been unequaled. He was. It felt like a cheap pick because he was recognized early this year as the as the best filmmaker of the decade, uh, and for fair reason. I mean, what he's able to do with Prisoners, Sicario. Blade Runner 2049. I know that I've already forgotten one. Arrival, one of my, my freaking third favorite movie of all time, uh, or fourth favorite movie of all time, Arrival. I mean, he's had just the best decade of any filmmaker. Uh, to me, it was tough because I thought the Russo brothers and Ryan Coogler were close, were close seconds and thirds to him. But to me, Denis Villeneuve is still clearly the best uh, director of the decade for me. Yeah, no, I th- that's an excellent choice. It is the one that I thought you would make. Um, I definitely, like I said, he's my runner-up. I think you know the amount of really good movies that he produced in a short amount of time uh, is is kind of amazing. Uh, he really did come out of nowhere in this decade. Um, and as soon as I saw Prisoners, I knew he was going to be special. But um, the person that I went with was actually someone you didn't mention, and that is Damien Chazelle. Um, I think what he did with three movies. He, he, he had three movies that came out this decade and all three of them are completely different. Um, you have Whiplash, which is sort of this incredible debut that he breaks onto the scene with this really sort of grueling drama um, about the relationship between these, these two men and um, what JK Simmons pushes Miles Teller to do. And uh, really just kind of a one-of-a-kind movie. Then you have him throwing back to old-school Hollywood musicals with La La Land, a movie that got him uh, the Best Director Oscar, the, the youngest person to ever win that award. Um, and and rightfully so. I think what he did with staging that movie was was amazing. And then, yeah, First Man's got a movie that we were a little more mixed on, um, but still a movie I think that shows the vision that he has. And um, I don't think that any of my faults with this movie are really attributed to Damien Chazelle's direction. I think that um, from a technical perspective, the movie is is breathtaking. I said that at the time, but I, I felt so conflicted because I was so affected by the spectacle of the movie. Um, and I thought that that just took it a long way, but maybe not as much by the story. Uh, but nevertheless, I think he's an exciting director and, you know, he's still really young. So I, I, can't, I just can't wait to see what he's going to do um, moving on. Because like I said, he made three really interesting films and they were all very different. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think that's a great pick. It doesn't register. He doesn't register as high for me because first man didn't affect me the way it affected you. Even, even though you recognize some of its fault, it still didn't affect me the same way that parts of it affected you. I think it's great filmmaking for sure, but it didn't have the same effect on me. And then law land. I am a little bit, a little bit softer on than you, but again, what he's doing is fantastic. And the fact that he's 40, how old is he like mid to late thirties? Yeah, the guy's going to be around for, yeah, I mean, the guy's going to be around for multiple more decades, and that's exciting because Whiplash is a fantastic film. I mean, for me, that's the one that hit me the most. Yeah, no, I think that's his best as well, but I I love La La Land as well. Okay, uh, next question, Scott, moving uh, into some more movie specific questions. Um, Funniest movies of the decade? 
Yeah, for me, again, there's there is only one winner. I I want to give a shout out to Booksmart from this year. I think it's just such a genuinely funny film. The fact that I've watched that film maybe more more in a short in the amount of time that I've watched it, you know, more times than uh, than any other film uh, this decade. And that speaks to the rewatchability, how funny it is, how touching and poignant it is. Because I think uh, that's not the question, but I think the two things really need to go hand in hand to really stick and make me want to rewatch it, even for the comedic aspects of it. Uh, and that's. Uh, with one ex- with one exception, maybe, which is the movie that I'll actually I'll end up naming as my favorite. The, another one uh, I've only seen it once, but everybody wants some. Just so genuinely fun and funny uh, at the same time. Very different experience than Booksmart, because uh, it's just going for a different experience. But it really works for me. And then the one for me that I that I just for some reason and Scott, I don't think that you could could have possibly guessed this is a movie I'm say. But just some reason this the, this movie, even though it, it uses a lot of similar joke tactics and. And I don't know if you've seen it, but if you did, I don't think that you would like it very much uh, for this reason, for the same reason that I actually think it's really funny. Is I could not stop laughing the first, the second, the third time I saw this movie. And that's the first Deadpool movie. The humor is not going to be for everyone, but I just cannot get over how funny I find this movie every time I watch it. I'm so glad that Deadpool 2 went a different direction with its humor. Uh, but that first Deadpool movie, it just so works. Yeah, like you said, the the humor in this movie not really my cup of tea, but I really liked Deadpool too. I thought it was I thought it was a really funny movie. So I'm glad we sort of had a, a shared experience with the with the franchise. But uh, yeah, Scott, everybody wants someone's in my honorable mentions for sure. I think you probably knew I would have that one in there, uh, even though it's not. You don't think of it as being a straight up comedy, like you said. It does have some really fun and hilarious moments in it. Um, I obviously I love the Lego movie and think it's really funny, but I think the for sheer belly laughs, the Lego Batman movie is even funnier. Um, I think that, you know, a lot of the the spoofing going on there um, is pretty hilarious and, and holds up really well. Um, and then my other honorable... Will, Will Arnett, Will Arnett's Batman is just a funnier character than oh, yeah. Chris Pratt's Emmett. Yes and no. I, I think they they have their their their, their, the their special in their own way. They, they, you're right. You're right. They're tough to compare. Uh, I think for belly laughs. I think to your point, they are both. The, they are both the special. Um, We're all special. My other honorable mention is Never Going Back, which is this A24 comedy that nobody saw, starring uh, Camilla Marone, Leonardo DiCaprio's girlfriend. Yeah, and, and Maya Mitchell. Um, and it's just a great sort of like stoner comedy about these two girls who are just having a really weird day. Um, and I think the the humor in this movie is is excellent and even when they resort to gross out humor they do it like in a clever way in a way that is set up well over the course of the film it's not just thrown in there for shock value so um i i appreciate that and i think the two stars are awesome together and have awesome chemistry so i think people should watch this movie it's on canopy but my winner was 22 jump street like this movie made me laugh so hard when i saw it in the theater um i think that the like meta humor that it has uh, about like what exactly what this movie is. The fact that it is a sequel to a reboot of a old eighties TV series that no one really asked for. Um, I think it has so much fun with the sort of meta humor of that. I think the, the bromance between Jonah Hill and Channing Tatum is hilarious. I think ice cube is absolutely hysterical in this movie. I think some of his, uh, scenes, the scene where he discovers that that Channing Tatum has been um, with his daughter, uh, has been dating his daughter, or sorry, I think it's Jonah Hill that's been dating his daughter, but, um, and his reaction to that uh, is absolutely hilarious, um, and the whole, the whole scene that ensues there. So this movie, um, despite looking like, you know, just another big screen comedy, 
I think was was so smart and funny. And you know what? That's not a surprise because it was Lord. Yeah, they, they really define the decade in, in comedy for me, as you can tell. Yeah, so, I was going to say that. Scott, going in the opposite direction from uh, movies that made you laugh, um, we, we, we are soft boys at heart, and that means that sometimes in, in the movies we also shed a few tears. Uh, and so I want uh, you to spend a moment talking about some of the movies, or maybe more specifically some of the movie moments that uh, made you tear up. Yeah, I, I mean, it would have been easy to look at this year and say something like an Avengers Endgame at the end with with Tony dying. Yeah. Spoilers alert. Um, that that could be a moment because that was a moment that got me. Uh, absolutely, that is a moment that got me. And but you know, I went for something a little bit a little bit earlier on in the decade. Uh, I think that Toy Story three, for example, would have been a really great pick. It's not the one that I'm picking, but uh, the end of, towards the end of Toy Story three, man, that's a real gut punch as well searching from last year not the end of the film although i think the end of the film is also touching but the beginning of the film mm-hmm. the first five minutes i mean one of the emo- most emotionally affecting first five minutes of a film you'll ever come by i think i think it just does so much in those first few minutes of the film to really emotionally overwhelm overwhelm its its audience uh and completely without any lines of dialogue either uh but the one for me i alluded to it earlier that i talk about ryan coogler uh, again, and I'm talking about him now, and that's for Fruitvale Station. I think that this movie is one of the first films that I saw after going to college, and I don't know something about it, like having moved out of you know where I grew up, having gone to college, being an adult. Obviously, I don't, I'm not able to connect with Oscar Grant in many ways, as you know, he's an African American in uh, African American in you know Oakland, California, and obviously has lived a very different life than I have. But something about that moment in time when I saw this film and going in the finale of the film, which is a you know, true life event. It's a dramatization of a real-world event when Oscar Grant was gunned down by police officers, uh, shot 13 times at near point-blank range. I think that what Ryan Coogler was able to do and what Michael B. Jordan was able to do in that performance was the most emotionally affected I've been uh, in the movie theater in in the 2010s. And it was one of those things that was completely unexpected. Searching was also unexpected, but it was one of the things where I knew going in what was going to happen. Right. And I was, uh, uh, I was still, I was still shocked by what it, but the effect that it had on me. Uh, whereas searching was like, it was unexpected because I had no idea what was going to happen going into the film. Uh, and for me, because of that fruit bell station, that kind of rules the day. Yeah. That's what I was going to say. Even though you know, what's going to happen, it's still a gut punch. And look, this is another movie that kind of, takes a guy who is known for his death and gives him a life um, and makes him into a real person. I think that's what makes it so hard to watch is because you get to see sort of a day in the life of this guy. You get to see how he lives or, you know, that's the first part of the movie and it's all, it all builds up to this death. And I think that just makes it more of a gut punch. So that's a good pick. Um, Scott, for me, I looked at a lot of endings to movies, I think, which, which got to me virtually being a wallflower is one, which uh, is special to me. Uh, the Force Awakens. I think the ending from the moment that Carrie Fisher tells uh, Ray that um, "May the Force be with you," and then she gets on the Millennium Falcon and flies and finds Luke. Just like not not that it was like sad or anything like that, because it's not really. But just the the sheer like joy and satisfaction that I felt seeing that the first time that they had actually pulled off an incredible Star Wars movie, and that like I was actually getting to experience what it was like in a theater really did get to me the ending of la la land is another one the whole sort of imaginative sequence about mia and sebastian imagining what would have happened if they'd actually stayed together and had a life and then sort of the 
peeling back the layers and seeing that they they didn't do that. They went in different directions. It's kind of heartbreaking. Uh, and then I guess if I had to pick one that is like my top one, it's the ending of Sing Street. And I'm not going to say anything about it because you still haven't seen this movie for some reason. Um, but it's one that gets me every single time. Um, like I've seen the movie a ton of times and it's still, it still, still gets to me. I think it's not just what's going on in the scene. And again, it's, it's one that's not sad either. It's, it's just like so lovely. Um, and it's what's going on in the scene, but also like the little card that John Carney has on the screen at the end about who the movie is dedicated to um, that I think also is, is something that uh, affects, affects me a, a lot because of, where I come from personally going into this movie. So um, the ending of Sing Street is, is a no brainer for me. Um, yeah. If I could have picked a non-movie, then I would have, uh, I would have gone for un, uh, un, uh, unbelievable. Yeah. Okay. Scott, moving on to maybe sort of a similar type category. I want to talk about some inspiring movies. Um, what were one or multiple movies that uh, inspired you this decade? Yeah, I'm spreading my wings a little bit these last couple categories to talk about movies that maybe you didn't quite expect me to talk about, uh, not because I haven't ever talked about them before, but they're just not the movies I talk about the most. I think that one of the ones that would have been a really easy pick for inspirational films, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse from last year. I mean, there are a few movies where you walk out feeling just so inspired. I think that you could. I wouldn't be surprised if you felt similarly going out of the movie, but also going out of, you know, every time you watch the Lego movie, I think that that's another one that that could be quite inspirational for similar reasons because they have similar messages at the core of them. Uh, not not surprising that Lord and Miller are behind both films too, uh, even though they didn't direct Spider-Man to the Spider-Verse, but of course, you know, being the the producers and, well, at least Miller being a scriptwriter. One of them was a scriptwriter, one of them wasn't. But mm-hmm. anyway, uh, I think Spotlight, for a very different reason, is, is another inspirational film. But for me, the one that I'm going with is one that, again, going back to freshman year of college, I mean, something about freshman year of college where I was just getting affected by movies in different ways. I saw The Untouchables, uh, which is a French film that... I wasn't yeah. following the Oscar closely enough. I don't remember if it got nominated or not, but it was remade this year in America as the upside. Well, well yeah, no. So I was going to say that it was remade mm-hmm. this year. Uh, I didn't see the remake because it's one of those things where I don't like Kevin Hart enough and I don't care enough about Brian Cranston to, to go see the film, especially when I think so highly of the original. Uh, uh, for those of you who are unfamiliar with one or the other of the films that are follow the same story, it's about this, uh, this uh, white, man who's a paraplegic who basically uh has to have kind of a a live-in uh, helper nurse caretaker however you want to put it and he hires this Af- this kind of poor disadvantaged african-american to kind of be his caretaker and the, and the bond that forms between the two of them again i can't speak for the upside but for the untouchables a really inspiring story about uh this relationship between these two people i don't think it's a perfect film i think that you definitely could have some faults with it, but I just felt undeniably hopeful. I think about things after, after I watched the movie, cause it's one of these movies where you, it really can go both ways. It's both a drama and a comedy. Uh, and the, and it's humor is just very genuine and it's drama is very genuine. And I love it for that. Scott, I don't know if you saw the untouchables, but it's such an inspirational film for me. And again, going back to, I guess, freshman year of college, just being a time where I was very impressionable, uh, both emotionally overwhelmed and inspired. Yeah, no, I haven't seen this one, but that's a uh, that's a good choice. I I will probably have to check it out sometime. I, I didn't real like you said, I didn't realize that you were such a big fan of it. But I think just from the description of the film, it makes sense in this category. Um, yeah, it wouldn't make it wouldn't make my. I mean, it didn't make my top fifty list, but I definitely would recommend it. It's a very inspiring film. I took kind of two approaches to this. Um, I, I looked at a couple categories of movies. One was just like 
movies where the content of the movie is actually inspiring. And then also movies that like where the circumstances in creating the movie are really inspiring to me. So I think the two for that latter category that I thought of were Roma and Boyhood, which are two movies by just incredible artists that, you know, made these incredibly personal movies, like movies depicting basically their own lives on the screen. And I think that, look, there's something to be said for making some insanely original movies like Christopher Nolan, you know, with these weird out there movies like Inception and stuff like that. But I don't know. I, I think I appreciate even more. And, and the creative side of me is, is inspired, you know, even more by someone who can tell their own story on the screen in a way that is compelling to any viewer. And I think that's exactly what Alfonso Cuaron and, and Richard Linklater did with these two movies. And so those are, those are big ones for me. And in terms of movies where the content of the movie is inspiring, Short Term 12 is one that comes to me. I think the um, just the sacrifices that people like Brie Larson and John Gallagher's characters in this movie, because I mean, these these could be real people. Um, and there there are real people who run these sorts of foster home, like temporary foster home type things. Uh, and the sacrifices that those people have to make on a daily basis is incredibly inspiring to me. And not not a subset of people that I really ever gave much thought to until I saw this movie. So that that's one for me. The Disaster Artist, I think another movie talking about like, like touching the creative side in me is this movie like, you know, Tommy Wiseau, right? Like he's a guy who he, he had no skills, really had no talent for making films. Um, and yet, and look, we'd be dumb to say that his bunny, his like weird source of money, which we don't really know where it's from and he would never say, but his weird source of money didn't play a role in, in him getting this movie made. Like he had a dream. He wanted to be an actor. He wanted to make this movie and he didn't let anything or anyone stop him. Um, you know, no matter how many people said the movie was bad, no matter how many people laughed at him, he got this movie made. And you know what? Maybe it didn't turn out to be the success that he thought it was going to be, but it's a success in his own way, in its own way. Uh, and I think there's something inspiring about that sort of creating in the face of all adversity that that is inspiring to me. And then the last two I, I thought about were a couple of documentaries. So Free Solo is obviously one that um, we talked about recently. I think just what Alex Honnold does is amazing and like never in a gajillion years would I ever think about doing something the likes of what he does. But um, it's inspiring to see that this is what, you know, the, the way that he uh, gets, gets enjoyment out of life and this is what he likes to do. And, you know, that's inspiring to me as well. And then the other one is this movie called Tower, this documentary from a couple of years ago about this, uh, what, what is kind of known, I think, is the first mass shooting in the U.S. Um, that took place on a college campus in Texas, I think in the 60s. Um, and the the documentary is really, it's really beautifully um, crafted. There's, it's, I can't, I can't think of the type of like animation style, but there's like, it's partially animated. They like do this recreation of um, the shooting and everything. But a lot of the stories that are told in the movie are sort of these just ins inspiring stories of like everyday people, everyday heroes, like coming to the rescue or helping people out, doing like uh, extraordinary things in an everyday setting to to help people who are caught up in the shooting. And uh, it, it's, it is a really inspiring movie and, and one that I hope people will check out because um, it's, it's an, it's a really interesting story. And the way that, again, the way that it's told is, is, uh, is pretty innovative and original for, especially for a documentary. And it was one of my favorite movies of the year that it came out. So tower, check that one out.
Okay, Scott. Um, last two questions. These are music themed, and we'll start with uh, best scores of the decade. Yeah, man, best score. Wow, this one might have been the hardest one just to actually pick. I mean, goodness, I don't even know. Uh, I still, I still don't even know what I'm going to decide. I have a little short list here that I made uh, before we recorded. I'm not even 100 percent sure which one I'm going to pick. I have to decide on the spot here. But some of the ones that I know that I, I won't end up landing on is uh, Trent Reznor, Atticus Ross for uh, what is this here? Watchmen? No, just kidding. The Social Network, <laughs> uh, one of the, an actual film from this year. I mean, also guys, Watchmen's amazing. Go watch Watchmen. Um, if for nothing, for nothing else than just for the score, because uh, that's yeah. incredible in and of itself. But the Social Network score that they did was was awesome. Justin Hurwitz's score for First Man was another one. First Man getting a lot of airtime on our Best of the Decade <laughs> uh, review here. Um, I think that, man, Johnny Greenwood had a ton uh, this decade, too. Man, I mean, Phantom Thread is the one that sticks out most in my mind, but he had uh, You Were Never Really Here last year, which was a, a very um, affecting score. I don't even know the right way to put it. He just did so much uh, this year. I can't help but not mention Arrival again because it is one of my favorite films. Uh, Johan Johansson, who has winner of the least original name as he's basically the same name for both first and last name there. Very easy to remember. Well, he's dead, so way to roast him. Nah, I didn't even realize that. Now I that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I thought that his score for Arrival was great, but I know that that probably won't get as much airtime as other scores uh, will. But the one that I'm ultimately picking is Nicholas Bertel's score for If Beale Street Could Talk. I just think that it maybe it's also partly the film itself is so beautiful, but the score is just perfect. I mean, it really is. It's just a perfect score for a beautiful film. It's beautiful and it's in its own way. It complements everything about the filmmaking of if Bill street could talk. And it's one of those uh, scores that when it came Oscar time last year, I don't even remember who won best score now. Uh, was it Bertel? I it was remember. Ludwig Gorenson for black Panther. It was, oh man, was it really? Wow. Mm-hmm. I had completely forgotten that. Nicholas Bertel should have won last year. Uh, or Justin Hurwitz, one of the two. I know Hurwitz didn't even get nominated, which is what I know, one of the things that you were most outraged about last year. And I, and I do agree with you. But for me, if Bill Street could talk is maybe the best score of the decade. Mark Shaman, I believe it was. They got nominated for freaking Mary Poppins Returns instead. Um, okay, my choices. I kind of, for my honorable mentions, I kind of just thought about who were some of my favorite composers and like yeah. what were the best works that they did. Yeah. Um, Carter Burwell is one which comes to mind, one of my favorites, and I think his scores for Carol and Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri were really excellent. Um, I think that what Hans Zimmer did for Blade Runner 2049 is one of his all-time best scores up there with The Dark Knight. Um, or Inception. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, well, I mean, I have mixed feelings about the Inception one just because I think it's it can be a little bit overbearing at times. But um, Just turn the volume down during the music. <laughs> there's one down here that I abbreviated, and I can't remember what it is now, but maybe I'll think of it. Um, What's the abbreviation? <laughs> oh, right. Okay, so... My other one of my other favorite composers, Alexander Desplat, um, yeah. and I think the two which stick out to me from him are uh, Little Women and then the Grand Budapest Hotel, which yeah. he actually won the Academy Award for. And even though I don't love that movie, his score, I, I think a lot of like I, I listen to it a lot and just the, it's so whimsy. Always sticks in my head. So um, and then another the other one I gave honorable mention to was um, Beast of the Southern Wild, which like. There's one particular track which pops up everywhere. It's in commercials. It uh, is in like every single movie montage from the decade. And but in general, I think the score is just this really sort of triumphant score that really um, uh, matches the tone of the movie. And Ben Zeitlin, who directed the movie, actually helped craft the score. 
composed the score as well. Uh, and, but then like my two that are tied for the win, I guess, uh, first man, Justin Hurwitz, as you mentioned, is, is amazing to me. And then uh, Mark Orton and Tin Hat Trio's score for Nebraska, the Alexander Payne film, um, is really this sort of folksy, like, uh, it, like you, <laughs> when you're, when you're walking or when they are showing the town uh, that most of the movie takes place in, in Montana, like, it feels like this is the music that would be playing in your head as you're walking through this like sort of decrepit, like Western Midwestern town. Like it, it is absolutely perfect for that. And then yeah, Hurwitz's score. No one has ever used the theremin as beautifully as he did on the score. So it's, it's one that um, I will listen to again and again. Um, last question, Scott, best songs, best movie songs of the decade. Yeah. This one's a bit harder for me. I, I tried to not go with, all animated movie songs that were Oscar Beatty uh, and, and and try to take some of the things out. I think that some of them are inevitable in terms of not necessarily being Oscar Beatty, like Let It Go. I'm not, I don't know, necessarily going to shout out as an official honorable mention, but I mean, it, it's hard not to talk about Let It Go in a decade uh, that was so dominated by that song. I mean, you talk about the viral nature of a song that and everything is awesome. I think those songs are just so viral that it's, it's almost impossible to escape uh, their presence in this decade of original songs i think two i will i kind of will end with two that i think are worth remembering and, uh, and the last one will be my favorite song of the decade and i don't think it'll surprise you scott but the one that i'll mention first is young and beautiful from the great gatsby by lana del rey i think that's a fantastic song uh one of the one of the best of the decade for sure don't love that film but love that song uh and then the one that it's just maybe it maybe it's a little bit of recency bias in this it didn't get nominated for the oscar last year because another song uh in its film won the oscar last year and that was shallows but the song that i'm choosing is the best song of the decade is always remember us this way from stars born last year just a, a wonderful song i mean i think that you could go with shallow or always remember us this way i think they're two of if not the best songs of the decade coming from the same film uh but this one the content of the song even even though it didn't go as viral obviously just because they decided to promote shallow more and I can, and in some ways I can understand why this song is the one that emotionally hit me the most. And we talked about emotionally affecting movies. I didn't mention a star is born, but now that I'm thinking about it, I mean, definitely emotionally affected different parts of the star is born as well, but always remember us this way song of the decade. Yeah. It's one of my honorable mentions. I think that's just like the show stopping sequence in that movie for me in the, in the middle of the movie, the moment sort of when I realized, okay, this is a great movie. And when I really just wanted to like stand up and applaud Lady Gaga's performance. Um, and yeah, so that one was an honorable mention for me. Another Day of Sun, which is the opening song from La La Land in the traffic jam. I love the song. I love the whole staging of that sequence. It's great. Um, Lost Stars and Drive It Like You Stole It, which are, you know, Begin Again and Sing Street, respectively, the John Carney movies. He has great songs. Like I get... You can go down the soundtracks of any of those movies of Begin Again, Once, um, Sing Street, and even like, you know, the third or fourth best song on there is still one of the best songs of the decade. Everything is awesome. Yes, in my honorable mentions, absolutely. Um, but my winner is Glasgow from this year. I think the song is amazing. And I think in terms of talking about movie songs, this is the one for me which meshes so well with the movie. Like the, the lyrics of the song are actually like, what uh, Rosalind experiences over the course of the movie and wild resin and the movie, the song just takes on so much more resonance uh, when you see it performed in the movie after seeing the journey that Rosalind goes through 
and yeah, like I think you could say that I'll always remember us this way. Like, yeah, it's it's related to the content of the film as well. But I think that Glasgow, the lyrics just cut straight to the heart for me, uh, even more than that great Lady Gaga song. So um, this is the one for me. Please, God, let it get nominated for the Oscar. Yeah, I mean, you could. I mean, go back to A Star Is Born and talk about the ending songs to culminate the emotional journey that characters go through. I mean, I'll never love again is another mm-hmm. one by, you know, and, and a star is born. The The final song, the movie ends on it. In fact, I mean, Glasgow, of course the movie ends on Glasgow as well, but uh, yeah, I mean, these, both these two movies. I mean, I, I kind of, I guess mentally blocked movies from this year, but uh, Glasgow should have been on my honorable mentions list uh, as well. Cause yeah, it's a, it's a great, it's a great set piece for that movie. Yeah. Um, okay, Scott, I think that should do it for our best of the decade. Uh, the, our, our kind of best of the rest there that we did in, you know, not expanding on our best movies of the decade. If you haven't heard our best movies of the decade, like I said, go back and check it out. Um, do you want to close us out for this episode? Sure. Yeah. Uh, Scott, any parting thoughts you'd like to leave us with today besides go back and listen to past episodes of our podcast? Just excited for this year and, and what it has to, to bring. I think we got a lot of exciting movies coming up. May, maybe not quite as many as in 2019, but hey, there's probably some that we don't even know about, right? That was that was one oh, of the sure. things in 2019, that just seeing random movies like Dark Waters, a movie that popped up like on our radar like in fall of last year and then was out a couple months later and ended up being my number three movie of the year. So uh, yeah. you just never know what's going to happen. But uh, even now, there's a lot to look forward to. Yeah, I mean, Parasite and Marriage Story, my number one and two this year. I had no idea they were coming out uh, until halfway through the year. I mean, I had I didn't even know about Parasite until it came out. Until I was, you know, hearing hearing reviews about it. And sorry, I will say, looking back on my, we'll do our most anticipated here soon. But looking back on my uh, most anticipated from last year, I think it did a good job because Little Women and Midsommar were both in my uh, top five most anticipated last year, and they were my number one and two movie of this year. So. Expectation bias, right there, baby. I'm kidding. <laughs> Maybe so, but they, they delivered. Fair enough. They delivered, and that's what matters. I mean, those are the movies, right? Those are like the high-risk, high-reward movies. If they let you down a little bit, they let you down a lot. But if they mm-hmm. if they bring home the bacon, then uh, they end up at the top of your list. So there you go. Yeah. yeah. All right, Scott, where can people find you on Twitter? I'm at Scarvydent. And I can be found at Shelton 2013 on Twitter, where you can also find our podcast at, at Media Plug Pods. We'd love it even more, however, if you checked us out on our podcast Patreon page. That's www.patreon.com slash mediaplugpods, where uh, you can find a bunch of different reward tiers. Check out the different ones. See what's right for you. And if you can support us over there, even at the $1 level, that's something that we'd super appreciate going into this new year. Again, that's www.patreon.com slash mediaplugpods. Check it out for yourself. If you choose not to support us over on Patreon, however, that's totally fine. You can still find us on Apple Podcasts and on Podbean, where we'd appreciate, uh, sorry, and then on Spotify, where we'd appreciate if you rated and reviewed us as well as subscribed and shared so that we can continue to reach a broader audience in year three of Some Like It's Scott. All right, I've said enough. We really appreciate all of you for taking the time out of your day to listen to us chat about movies. And we'll be back next week with a review of 1917. That's right, the Golden Globe winner for Best motion picture drama 1917 directed by sam mendez who also won the golden globe and and a nice little treat on the back half of that episodes talking about the oscar nominations they come out next monday morning and just because of our schedule we won't be recording until after the oscar nominations come out next week so we get to talk about them immediately after they come out which is super exciting so we hope that you join us then Uh, until then however i'm scott shelton for scott harvey we'll see you next time (laughs) 